Welcome to Now Appalachia, hosted by author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. And now, Appalachia. And hello, friends. We welcome you inside once again to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here and broadcast on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue to profile the outstanding authors and literary works coming from those with connections to Appalachia, either in their uh, biographical uh, lineage, either through the works that they are representing and writing about, or from other ways that the region is represented in those literary works. And we're delighted to have you with us for another episode here on the program. I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and we are diving into an outstanding new novel by our guest today, Edward Farmer, and the title of the novel is Pale. And this is a book that is really going to grab your attention. It is really going to hold your attention, but it's also going to be a story that you may be familiar with if you're a student of history. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that is so here in just a little bit. But we welcome Edward Farmer into the program today. He is a native of Memphis, Tennessee. He journaled and cultivated stories his entire childhood. He's a graduate of Amherst College with a degree in English and Psychology and is a recipient of the MacArthur Leithauser Travel Award for Creative Writing. And he currently lives and writes in Pasadena, California. And Pale, the book that we're going to be talking with him about today, is his first novel. So, Ed, welcome to Now Appalachia. We're delighted to have you here. Thank you so much, Elliot, and I'm so happy to be here. Well, we are so glad to have you here, and this novel really uh, grabbed me from the very beginning, and when I saw it was coming out uh, earlier in 2020, I knew I had to have you on because the whole storyline and everything that you've put into this book is wonderful, and it's something that uh, we all can connect to. But the first question I wanted to ask you is, uh, the setting of your book's really important. You set your story in 1966, and as I started reading the book, I kept thinking, you know what, this could easily be 1856 because of what is taking place in your story. And basically, as we get into the book, we learn that uh, there's a black woman living alone. Her name is Bernice, and she accepts her brother Floyd's invitation to serve uh, on a plantation with him and to serve as a servant on a plantation with him. And when I was reading the story, I thought this could easily have been 1856 in the antebellum South. Uh, as much as it is 1966. So I wanted to ask you, what got you interested in kind of that storyline and those motifs of, of servitude and indentured servants and plantations and all of those things that we oftentimes associate with the antebellum South prior to the Civil War? What got you interested in kind of all of those motifs and those connections there? Yes, yes. So I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee, and my father's family is from Greenwood, Mississippi, where the story takes place. And uh, much of that side of the family is still in Greenwood, Mississippi. So I grew up my entire childhood seeing the cotton plantations around me, um, being really intrigued by the cotton fields uh, as we would uh, make many trips to Greenwood, Mississippi. And so I knew instantly that my story would take place in Greenwood, uh, which has that famous logo, the cotton capital of the world, that I would see each time I passed, each time we went into Greenwood. And I also wanted it to be set in a time that was familiar to my parents, because both my mom and father worked the cotton fields. And so it was, these were stories I had heard my entire childhood, and I wanted to reflect those stories um, in this novel and make sure I was telling a story that, even though it's not my story, uh, it's a story that reflected my parents' story. 
Very good. And so as we mentioned, Floyd extends this invitation to Bernice. Why in the world does she say yes? Why in the world does she agree to go with him to work on a plantation um, and, and agree to do this and to follow his uh, suggestion and, and accept his request? So Bernice is an interesting character because the Bernice we meet at the very beginning of the novel is a Bernice who is very headstrong. And she's told by her brother Floyd, don't bring that mess down here. <laughs> he said, you're in Greenwood and you're at the Kern Plantation and uh, don't bring that foolishness from the outside world into this home. And so we, we instantly meet a Bernice who is uh, very strong-willed but we also get to, uh, we get to see a Bernice and learn about a Bernice who, as she states, is a, a servant to others. And I believe that she's not only a servant to others in the household, which uh, comes to make sense as uh, the reader reads, she's also a servant to those around her. She's a person who can't help but want to do good, can't help but want to help others. And so the Bernice we meet is a Bernice who, starts off very headstrong, but then we get to see another side of her that's very gentle and very caring for those who do good and those who do bad, which I think makes her a very interesting character. She is. She's a very multi-layered character and is interesting for a lot of different reasons. And one of the things I liked about her too, Ed, is she's so perceptive and she's very good at picking up on sort of the aura or the feel uh, of, of people and sort of those spaces of unspoken discourse or dialogue where she can pick up and sense people's tensions and, and anxieties towards one another and how they feel about one another. And we see that early on because she meets a, a character when she goes inside the house to work, another servant named Silva. And I, I highlighted this quote because I thought it was so interesting. Silva warns Bernice, she says, some things don't keep well inside this house. And we see that Bernice kind of senses that there is a tension going on at the plantation. It's, it's, sometimes it's overt, but sometimes it's unspoken, which kind of speaks to her perceptive abilities as a character. But things really get interesting when you introduce us to two other characters, and these are Silva's sons, Jesse and Fletcher. Tell us a little bit about them and their role in the story. Yes, the sons of the house servant Silva. Uh, Jesse and Fletcher are very interesting characters because with their arrival to the plantation, this game ensues. Um, they, they awaken a vengeful seed within the missus and she begins her, uh, her plan, her plan for the, uh, for the rest of the novel. And the, the characters are very interesting because they couldn't be more alike and more different. Um, just as far as physical uh, attributes go, uh, one is very young, uh, it's not very young, but uh, slightly younger than the other, He's thinner, he's uh, slightly prettier. Um, and then you have the older boy, uh, Jesse, who is uh, a thick, stout young man who is, uh, comes across very prideful, but they both have this innocence about them. And that's something I really wanted to depict in the novel is the experiences of young African-Americans. And they couldn't be more different, but they both have an innocence about them and they both have uh, this feeling of possibility that I really wanted to explore within this story, uh, and this feeling of possibility within a young African-American, uh, which I think is explored uh, throughout the novel, and looking at how that possibility is challenged, how it's changed, uh, and how it ultimately can change us as individuals, but how we all start out with it. 
Excellent. Yes. And I think that theme uh, comes up over and over again as the story unfolds and as your novel uh, gets into the uh, various chapters midway through the book. And another little interesting caveat there about kind of that, that idea of, 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 of these two boys and kind of where they fit in that space that you were talking about a moment ago is when the missus starts hitting on one of them. And the missus is, of course, the, the lady who owns the house and is hiring the slaves. And, and there's this whole interesting kind of back and forth where you can tell there's some uncomfortable feelings there, but the missus being in the position that she is in kind of owns them and owns uh, the house and is hiring the servants and paying them and keeping them. So it has to be tolerated. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? And uh, is that something that when you look back on this period uh, uh, in history and, and you think about this that went on quite often in terms of uh, the lady of the house or the man of the house sort of uh, uh, if you got the wandering eye or, or got a little frisky with someone that that was something that was acceptable and that the servants just had to sort of accept and take. Yes, I feel that with uh, Jesse's character when the missus begins to show interest in him. It was something I wanted to explore because I thought about, I, wanted, I really wanted to put myself in a, in a position of a young African-American who uh, possibility, uh, the possibility of life outside of, a, of work, of manual labor was not, uh, it, it was not something that was gonna come easily to African-Americans. And so when Jesse receives the interest of the missus, um, that feeling of wanting to go with it, of wanting to believe that this person actually sees something more in him. And so uh, even if that is something that he knows is wrong, because he knows that it is wrong for him as an African-American to be, uh, to show interest or show, uh, to even accept interest from a white woman. And so he, but to see how it would be for a character to sort of go along with it. And uh, what are his motivations? A lot of this novel is about motivations. What would motivate uh, the missus to flirt with a young African-American? What would motivate this young African-American to accept the advances and to go along with it? And so I was very intrigued as I thought about um, myself how would I react? And so um, one of the first scenes where we see the missus and Jesse together, uh, and we see a slight bit of flirtation, uh, it, was a, it was an interesting moment as I was writing because I pictured my room and being that young African-American and what would I do? Would I, would I look back? Would I, would I look away? Would I, what would I feel? And so it was really, uh, it was really rewarding actually to write uh, from the perspective of not only uh, Jesse but also the missus and what she could uh, possibly imagine and be feeling as she is um, beginning to flirt with a young African-American worker. Edward Farmer is joining us here on Now Appalachia. We're talking to him about his new novel, Pale, which is set uh, in 1966 and it is set uh, uh, on a plantation and a Mississippi cotton plantation, and it's a house full of servants, a house full of secrets, and, and Ed, we'll come back to the uh, book in just a minute, but I wanted to ask you uh, uh, a question about your life and sort of yourself. So, so you're from Mississippi uh, via Memphis, Tennessee. Yes. How on earth did you get out to Pasadena, California, and what are you <laughs> doing out there? Yes, yes. So, after, after high school, I actually went off to college in Massachusetts, and I spent four years in Massachusetts, and then I moved back to Tennessee. And 
I was wondering what was I going to do with my life? Would I stay uh, in the area? Um, because I had already spent four years away. And it's funny, the, the, the ocean attracted me. And so I actually uh, moved, to, uh, moved to Los Angeles, having never been to LA. And I visited in October of 2006. And, and by December, I had moved to Los Angeles. And so uh, I really just wanted to experience something different. But it's funny because once I moved to LA, um, I never stopped writing about the South. And even when I was in Massachusetts for four years of college, I never stopped thinking and writing about the South. So it's always a pull that I have back to my Tennessee and Mississippi roots. Very good. So we mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show that you were a recipient of the uh, MacArthur Leithhouse or Travel Award. How did you go about getting that? And where were some of the places that you got to visit? And what did you get to write about when you were visiting? Yes. So with, uh, with this particular award, um, I wrote about place. I was very interested in place. And I wrote five distinct pieces uh, for the entry. Uh, one was about New England and trying to capture New England. I had also been to New York where I interned um, at a high school. And so I wrote about the experience of being in New York. And then I concluded with the experiences of driving through Mississippi um, with my father. And so I was very happy when I received the call that <laughs> I had won this award and that I could travel anywhere in the world I wanted to go. And I immediately said, I want to go to Greece. I had always seen uh, specials on television and I was fascinated with Greece. And so I was able to go to Greece and travel around Greece and write about those experiences. And it was all about trying to capture a sense of who I was because I was trying to write about my own identity. And that identity was definitely challenged and is always challenged when as an American, uh, you travel outside of the United States. And then I also was considering the fact that as an African-American, I'm traveling through, uh, through Greece. And so I did a lot of writing about those experiences. Excellent. Very good. And I know that Pale is your first novel. So what were some of the challenges and or frustrations that you had in writing your first novel and getting that first novel ready for publication? So Pale, I actually wrote it in 30 days. And uh, people are often surprised that it was written so quickly, but I tell people that Pale wasn't the first novel I wrote. So um, as a writer, you often hear about writers saying they have to get that first novel under their belt and then throw it away, put it in the closet somewhere, <laughs> and then write the real novel. <laughs> so I feel that Pale was the real novel. Um, and so the lessons I learned with the first novel um, I took it into writing Pale. And I was able to write Pale so quickly because it felt, the uh, it felt like the story wrote itself. I'd heard so many stories that my parents told about working the cotton fields and also uh, just growing up in the South. And so the story really did write itself. And then after those 30 days of writing it, I then spent two years revising it. And that's where the novel really took shape because I needed to get the words onto the page. And from there, I could really wrestle with the story and really wrestle with the characters because characters don't tell you everything at first. 
in those 30 days, they, they gave me a little surface, <laughs> a surface material. And then from there, I could really delve into what are you really hiding from me? And it's been, I spent two years wrestling with the characters to develop tell into what it is today. Very good. And I'm so glad you said what you said, because we've had other writers on the program that have said that multiple times in different ways, that, that the real writing is in the revision. And it's, and it's in going back to the, to the manuscript for the second time or the third time and really fleshing things out and cutting things back and doing what needs to, to be done to sort of shape it up and, into the final book. So I'm really glad Definitely. that you mentioned that. Uh, Edward Farmer is our guest on Now Appalachia. We're talking with him today about his new novel, Pale, which is uh, an outstanding story uh, set on a Mississippi cotton plantation in 1966. And, and Ed, we were talking a little bit about, about Fletcher and Jesse uh, before uh, we stepped away from the book for a moment. And, and one of the things I really like is how uh, all of your characters, Fletcher included, but especially Bernice, start to question themselves and kind of their roles and responsibilities as, as things in the house go on, as the seasons change, as the uh, mood or the tone of the house begins to deteriorate. You know, we see Fletcher kind of questioning how he and the other servants are any different than slaves, how they're any different than what we typically uh, remember uh, as slavery and from slavery uh, in the antebellum South. He's questioning that. Bernice, on the other hand, is struggling with kind of this duality that she occupies because on the one hand, she's the servant, but on the other hand, she's a confidant for what goes on in the house. And so everybody's kind of struggling with, with you know, their perceptions of what is going on here. Uh, and then from the backdrop of that, we find out that the missus is up to uh, some kind of a diabolical plan. And I don't know if you want to give that away in terms of what she's actually up to, but can you talk to us a little bit about your characters kind of occupying these, these different spaces where they start to question themselves and start to look introspectively and in kind of their role in, in the bigger picture of what's going on on the plantation? Yes, it was very intentional. Um, I have spoken a lot about that this is not an African-American story, that the trauma and the, the experiences that the characters uh, live through, it's universal. And each person, each character in this book has experienced harm done to them, and they've reacted to that harm. Uh, I talk often about how we are shaped, challenged, and changed. And each character goes through those shaping, uh, through the shaping, through the challenging, and the changing. And it becomes very universal. And so it was important for me when writing it to really think about how a character like the missus, um, she's not all evil. Uh, she may um, do bad things, but she's not an evil person. And there are circumstances in her life that have brought her to this point. Uh, the same can be said of Silva, who toes the line of, um, doing good and wanting to do right by her sons and also wanting her own bit of revenge. Everyone is um, affected by those around them and um, they then think of ways to get back. Uh, they also think of ways to keep some of their humanity. And so it was really important to look at both sides to make them human because I know that there are different sides of me. I may be happy or I may be sad. I may be uh, angry and I want to get back at this person. And then I think for most of us, we revert to our, our teachings uh, from our youth, uh, the morals that we have uh, to keep us on the right track. But this is a novel that looks at what happens if there's nothing to keep you on that right track anymore. 
uh, what, what would happen to you. And there's such wonderfully rich description uh, in this story, not only of the seasons as we were talking about in terms of as they have, as they develop and pass and, you know, the broiling hot summer goes into the, to the cooler fall into the chillier winter, but you just have some wonderfully rich and less descriptions of, of Mississippi and kind of what, what this house is like, what the plantation is like. And I, I was wondering if a lot of that came from, from, from your upbringing and your childhood. And if so, what specifically kind of stood in, out in your mind from that experience when you were setting this, creating the setting here? And are there any other writers that maybe you look at as really good examples of setting up uh, setting and kind of uh, that rich description that really helps ground the setting as, in terms of being a place? I really look at Pell as, um, I've described it as a love story to Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, um, I loved Mississippi. Um, and I still do love Mississippi. And I wanted to depict a Mississippi that often surprises readers because they read it. And I've heard from readers, I wanna go there. I wanna see what you're describing because it's not a Mississippi that's bad. It's a Mississippi that's beautiful and that's very vibrant um, from the summer to the fall to the winter. Uh, it's ever changing. And uh, it's a place that I think people are intrigued by now uh, after they read the novel. And that came from my childhood. It came from um, viewing the land around me. And I always wanted to describe my settings as vividly as possible. Um, I always had a saying uh, that, um, that if these words would culminate and God's hands would formulate them into something beautiful. And when I, when I set out to write about Mississippi, I knew that I wanted to depict the childhood that I saw, uh, the land that I saw and came to love. And so uh, it was my goal to write <laughs> as vividly as possible uh, about the land I knew. And then as far as writers, I was very influenced by James Baldwin, not necessarily as far as place, but his understanding and his writing about the African-American experience. And that was something that I really wanted to be true to. And I've had writers say that, I'm, I'm sorry, I had readers say that the characters read as being true and that uh, I'm being honest uh, about these characters and not demonizing any character, but really looking at the humanity within them. So writers like James Baldwin helped me to be able to see the inner workings of a person and to see how to write about the African-American experience uh, as well as the other experience um, that I may not be familiar with because I'm an African-American, but at the end of the day, I'm a human. And we're all human and we all have things that impact us. And so I believe that this novel brings it back to that level of humanity. Very well said, very well said. So you've got Pale now under your belt and it's doing really, really well and it's a wonderful book. But my question next is, what are you working on next? I have a great novel that I'm working on. I am currently uh, working with my editor on revisions. And the, this new novel takes place in West Memphis, Arkansas. Arkansas, so right across the bridge from uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And I was really intrigued by West Memphis, Arkansas because it was always that other place, <laughs> that place just over the river. And um, each time I visited, I would look to see what are the differences because we're just over the river, but this is Arkansas and we're Tennessee. So what makes us alike and what makes us different? And so my new novel takes place in West Memphis, Arkansas. And as I've told a few readers, 
I'm getting closer and closer to a story about Memphis that takes place in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I tell people I'm, I'm skirting all around it and then I'll hit it pretty soon. Fantastic. So you're going to get there. You're going to get uh, all sides are going to get into the middle eventually. Yes. In terms of getting to Memphis. Fantastic. That's great. So Ed and our final moments with you today. Uh, if someone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about pale, to talk to you about your career as an author and a writer, uh, how can they get in contact with you first of all? And then where can they get copies of pale? Yes. Please, any listener, any reader, um, please contact me. One of the best experiences of this journey has been connecting with readers and taking questions. Also, um, just uh, hearing about motivations. Uh, there are a lot of aspiring writers who just have that question that they want to ask um, or they just want to talk about the novel. And that's, it's been great. Uh, I tell people to follow me on Instagram at Edward A. Farmer, also on Facebook at Edward A. Farmer. Uh, or you can also go to my website, edwardafarmer.com, and just see what events I'm doing. Um, and you can uh, log into those events, and it would be great to have conversations with you. Also, as far as uh, acquiring the book, local bookstores are our best friends. We are always trying to support our local bookstores. So I would say contact your local bookstore and uh, see if they can get the book for you. Also, um, I know uh, listeners in Memphis can go to Novel bookstore uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, or anywhere books uh, are sold. And so you can go online and order the book as well. Edward A. Farmer has been our guest here on Now Appalachia today. We've been talking to him about his career as a writer. We've been talking to him about growing up uh, on this, in Mississippi and in Memphis, Tennessee, and what he's up to out in uh, California, in Pasadena, California. But more importantly, we've been talking to him about his outstanding new book that you need to get a copy of and read ASAP. It is called Pale. It is set on a Mississippi cotton plantation in 1966. But as Ed has said in our interview today, it's much more than a story about servants and, and, and misses and masters. It is a love story and it is a story about uh, what do we do when our sense of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing is challenged by external forces. And Ed, it's a wonderful novel. Congratulations on, on it. I know it's doing so well. It's gotten all kinds of critical acclaim and, and praise, which is all well-deserved, but it's a terrific book and we're, we're so happy for you and congratulations. And as you get that next novel finished, we'd love to have you back on Now Appalachia to talk about it. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We want to take a moment as we finish up here on Now Appalachia to say a special thanks to the executive producer of Now Appalachia. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate all the work that Pam does behind the scenes, not only bringing uh, you each and every one of these episodes of Now Appalachia across the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, but more importantly, she's responsible for all the podcasts that you hear over the course uh, of the week on the network. And we could not bring these shows to you without her help and her support. So we appreciate that so very much. So thanks, Pam, for all that you do. We also want to remind you as well, this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And that is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia. But please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next. Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.